Today's reading is taken from St Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. The Fulfilment of the Law Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, St Michael's. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm married to Sarah. Uh, we have two um, amazing boys called Micah and Ezra, uh, and we've got a baby on the way too. Uh, so it's very exciting times uh, here in the Cook household uh, in Bake Up. Um, Sarah and I were, were married in... St Mike's 11 years ago next week I think um, so it's a really special place to us uh, you guys are really uh, special people to us um, we're so grateful for the way that you've prayed for us and supported us over um, recent years uh, we really hope we can visit uh, in person again soon uh, but at the moment like the rest of the world um, we'll satisfy ourselves with with this with the internet uh, which is great isn't it um, and also, I thought I'd uh, preach in front of um, a picture of the London Underground, so just so you didn't get too disorientated by um, a northerner talking to you. <laughs> um, I'm really excited uh, that you are looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, through the summer. Um, it's, it's three chapters of just absolute gold, isn't it? It's the longest uh, continuous teaching uh, by Jesus in the Bible. Uh, and it's just such a joy to get stuck into his words, um, to remember that um, as well as being uh, creator and redeemer of all things, as well as being the author of life and the conqueror of death, as well as being our saviour and our closest friend, as well as all that, Jesus is also the greatest teacher the world has ever known. He is brilliant beyond compare. So this Sermon on the Mount is just the most astonishing teaching ever recorded. No one before it or since it has ever improved on it. It inspires us, it rebukes us, it comforts us and it challenges us. Um, and to be honest, if it, if it doesn't do both of those things, if it doesn't comfort and challenge us, um, we're reading it wrong. Uh, we're not doing it right. So here's Jesus, uh, just about just as he's about to launch into the main chunk of his, his world-changing teaching, um, he tells his audience what he's going to do. Or, I, I suppose more specifically, he tells um, his audience what he's not going to do. Um, so verse 17, as we just had read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now, uh, this is, is strange, isn't it? Or we might think it's strange. It, isn't Jesus supposed to be like a, a great revolutionary? Doesn't it? Doesn't he come to to change everything, to start everything afresh? And and yet here he is saying nothing is changing. He's saying the you know the law and the prophets they're staying. 
Um, the Law and the Prophets was their way uh, then of talking about what we now know as the Old Testament. Um, perhaps we might say, well, the Old Testament is great for, for Sunday school lessons, um, but that's kind of it, isn't it? Uh, isn't it all about the New Testament now? We're New Testament, New Covenant people, aren't we? You know, the old has gone, the new has come. So can we now just sort of move on from the Old Testament and its kind of primitive ways? Well, well, no, it would seem. Uh, Jesus says, no, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. What does that mean? It's an interesting question, right? Well, uh, perhaps there's a few ways to answer that. First, there's the prophetic. Uh, and Matthew is full of this. Um, he, he references the ways that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies um, all through his book. Um, for instance, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 22-23, um, we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew, he, he lifts that straight from um, the famous Jewish Jewish prophet Isaiah and he ply, applies it to this Jewish carpenter and rabbi Jesus and and if you go through the New Testament there are over 300 of these sort of fulfillments throughout the Bible in fact I read the other day that there are only 12 chapters in the New Testament that do not mention the Old Testament crazy eh um some of some of all this uh, fulfillment that Jesus does does of prophecy, you, you might think, oh, that could be a coincidence or or some kind of cl clever manipulation. Um, but you know, how how about arranging where you die, or or perhaps even trickier, arranging where you're born? Like you can't do that, can you? <laughs> Not so easy. Um, you see, there's no one like Jesus who fulfills prophecies in these ways. Only him. So that's that's the prophets, that's fulfilling the prophets. But but what about the law? In what sense might we say that Jesus fulfills the law? Well, let's remember that Jesus spoke these words 2000 years ago to, to Israel and um, to Israel, to whom the law had been given by Moses uh, on a similar mountain to the one Jesus spoke on now, by the way. Uh, they were the ones, Israel, who were supposed to have lived by this law and, and to therefore have shown the world what God was like. They were supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as I think Amy um, talked about last week. Israel had been blessed by God and so the idea was that Israel would then be a blessing to the world. But they weren't they were salt that had lost its flavor. They were the light that had gone out. They had messed up, they were lawless, they were rebellious, and they failed in the mission that God had given them. So what was God gonna do about it? Well, this, it might sound a little bit um, flippant, but essentially God said, if I want this job doing properly, I better do it myself. So he came to earth as Jesus. And, and where God's people had failed, Jesus, um, the true Israelite, if you like, he succeeded. Where they were faithless, he was faithful. How exactly? Well, ultimately, remarkably, it was he who became 
that city on a hill that cannot be hidden, because the light of the world hung on a cross on the hill of Calvary, and he was the new Israel. He was the blessing the world needs. He was doing what they could not do. And therefore, we see that he is the fulfillment of, of the law and the prophets, that, that he sets a pattern then for his people um, that include us uh, to follow, um, that does not reject the Old Testament law, but it, it builds on it. Um, Tom Wright has said that in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is painting a picture, not of a standard you have to meet to get into the kingdom, but of the way of life that characterises the kingdom. Now, um, I don't know about you, but in recent months, I've found myself uh, reflecting um, on my way of life. Uh, the, the pressure, um, the, the trauma, if you like, of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, it, it's kind of revealed many of our priorities, hasn't it? Um, maybe you've found yourself concerned by what you've found. I don't know. Um, I know I've realised I'm not actually as patient a parent as I thought I was. Um, I don't know what your discovery might have been, but whatever it is, um, of course God wants to reach out to us and he wants to say, uh, fear not, I've not given up on you. Um, because his spirit is, is always calling us. He's always urging us to listen to him above, above the craziness of um, constantly distressing news headlines, of working from home demands, of um, Netflix binges. Um, what do we find if we can um, tune into him above all that noise? Well, we find that he, the spirit of God, is always constantly pointing us to Jesus. He's calling us to adore him, to, to worship him, to fix our eyes on him and him alone. And if, if that's the, the, the vision, if you like, the big picture, then the Sermon on the Mount we could think of as giving us the detailed plan of how we get there. The roadmap of what it's going to look like in practice to have a, a heart that is totally devoted to God. And it's, it's going to cause us to ask ourselves some pretty uncomfortable questions at times. Are we fulfilled by the one who is the fulfillment? Or do our hearts lean elsewhere? Um, the, the pressure of coronavirus has, has laid bare our, where our priorities are. But hopefully, maybe that can also mean um, it can act as a powerful corrective. You know, you, that old thing of you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Do we, do we hear that this morning? Do we hear that, that Jesus is all you need? That um, success in your career is not what you need? That a nice holiday is not what you need? That a, a nice house and some money is not what you need? That the right school for your kids is not what you need? You need Jesus and him alone. And, and in what follows of the rest of the, the Sermon on the Mount from uh, chapter 5, verse 20 um, onwards to, to the end of chapter 7, um, we see that, that being fulfilled in Jesus rather than in ourselves, it, it sets us free from ourselves in this most beautiful way. Um, I don't want to look back in, in 5, 10, 20 years and realise that my 
coronavirus coping mechanism was more of me and less of God. Um, and I don't think that's what you want either. You know, to, to look back and to realise that we're still as wedded to overwork and to the pursuit of worldly success as ever, that we zoomed just as much or, or more even than we were ever in the office, that we, that to be honest, we look no different than the rest of the world. Is that going to be the limit of our ambition in this time? If it is, then I reckon we might want to suggest that we're not actually being ambitious enough, that we are playing it too small that we've allowed ourselves to believe that contentment is found in putting ourselves first, when in fact it's the exact opposite. Uh, Martin Luther has th had this amazing definition of sin, of being curved in on yourself. Uh, navel-gazing, as my dad calls it. Me, me, me. When Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, if you like, he's, he's calling us to lift our eyes up. To see that our help, it doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from the maker of heaven and earth. To put it bluntly, do you really think that you've got a better plan than he does? Because surely we will need his help. Especially when we move on and we read him saying this in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, thanks, Jesus. Uh, this isn't exactly getting easier, is it? Um, you know, surely we can't surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's that's impossible. They were like righteousness ninjas. They were they were real pros. They took righteousness really seriously, uh, so seriously uh, that they specified eleven parts of the bread making process apparently uh, that were not going to be uh, permitted on the Sabbath. Uh, and Jesus, uh, you might have read elsewhere in the Gospels, he talks about how they tithed herbs. <laughs> now, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, my self-discipline, um, it barely survives the, the, the Krispy Kreme stand in Tesco, <laughs> let alone Pharisee standards. Um, we have no chance of beating Pharisee standards, but I don't think that is Jesus's point. Because what if the righteousness that we are called to in the kingdom of God is, is different? to the one that the Pharisees subscribe to? What if, as Jesus said, it's not about looking good on the outside? Because that, that's what the Pharisees were experts in. They were experts in religious posturing, um, of being thought of as impressive or important by their grand public gestures. You know, perhaps we might fall into that trap when we think, oh, we'll just do a little humble brag on Facebook or throw in a little public donation on just giving or do a long wordy prayer in in zoom church uh, or that ostentatious strategic kind of show of grace in the workplace that gets you well thought of what if the righteousness that jesus is talking about flows naturally from a godly heart that it, it bubbles up from within that it's quiet and poor in spirit and and not self-seeking what if it leads you to give away a coat if you have two, as Jesus is going to command um, us to do later on in chapter five? What if it causes you not to try and win an argument so that you look good, but to hold your tongue? What if it means 
giving someone else an opportunity that, that you love? What if it means being kind to your enemies or, or loving them even? Who's an enemy for you? Um, is it the person on the other side of a political divide? Um, person on the other side of the aisle in church, maybe? <laughs> Maybe it's someone you feel is a, is a freeloader on the benefit system when you kind of feel that you've earned your way in life. Maybe it's an illegal immigrant. Maybe it's the government. I don't know. Um, what does loving someone who is an enemy to you look like? It probably looks costly. But um, we should be under no illusions because making Jesus your all will cost us. Um, those of us who worship uh, at the altar of the approval monster, um, I, I love a bit of approval, I must admit, um, we'll find it hard uh, to realise that going Jesus' way does not mean popularity, actually, it means rejection. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, knew a little bit about rejection, and he said this when, um, he said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Jesus, he just said, pick up your cross and follow me. And of course, we all know where people who are carrying crosses end up. You see, this challenge of Jesus, it, it, it kind of hangs in the air after the Sermon on the Mount. What are you going to do with it, is the question. Um, some of us might say, isn't this all a bit much? Uh, maybe we, we want to dismiss it all as a bit too radical. Um, or maybe we want to be a bit like the rich young man and, and we say, all these commands I've kept since I was a boy. But Jesus says to us, really? Have you? Even in your heart? Okay then, well, uh, why not give all your money away then? Or maybe your second home? To follow Jesus, it means to follow him down the hard and down the narrow way. Uh, to walk the challenging path where we we open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart to, to make us less Pharisee and more Jesus. Where we learn that our motivation is, is not um, going to be self-seeking, but a response of love to our Father who loved us and cared for us first, uh, before the foundation of the world even. Yes, Jesus bids us come and die, but he doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't done already himself. Yes, he says, take up your cross, but he did it first. Yes, he says, love your enemies, but he shows us how. Yes, he says, give away everything you have and share it with the poor, but only after he did it first. You can't get to me, he says, so I'm coming to you. The road is narrow, but he knows the way. He went to Calvary. He paid the price. He set us free. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he lives in us. Will we take his hand and accept his invitation to a life of true fulfillment today?